Open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Our focus this morning will be Galatians 4, 8 through 11. I'll be reading 319 through 411. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin... So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father, so you you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again To the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on us now and teach us. May the gospel of Christ be made so precious and dear to us 
that though in one sense we could understand as we look within ourselves how it is that one could be drawn into such false teaching, but yet as we stare at the gospel, we would be astonished with Paul and ask, how could one ever do so? Do this, Father, for it is not within ourselves. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Paul is like... Many preachers. He has more than one conclusion. To be fair, it's more accurate to say he has two kinds of conclusions here. Last week I said that 4, 1 through 7 function as the conclusion to the, Paul, to the argument that Paul had taken up in 3.19, beginning with the question, why then the law? And I'll stand by that statement. I won't retract it, but I will add this nuance. It's the theological conclusion to the reflection that he began in 319. And what we have in 4, 8 through 11 is then the applicational conclusion of everything he's been teasing out so far. And at the center of this applicational conclusion is the question, verse 9, how can you turn back? If the lowest of slaves have become sons of the highest of kings, how could they turn back? How? Charles Wesley taught us to sing, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And having experienced such a liberation, such a release from that dungeon, how could one turn back? Let's ask another hymn writer. John Newton New bondage to sin. And he knew liberation. And he knew the danger of turning back. Whenever he was enslaved to sin, he not only enslaved men as a captain of a slave galley, he was himself a slave for a period of time. That was before he came to know God's redemption and seeing of His amazing grace to a wretch like him. And even so, he knew the danger of turning back such that if you would visit his study, you would find above the mantle, written in bold letters, the words of Deuteronomy 15.15. 15. Thou shalt remember that thou was a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. If we're commanded to remember, that surely means we're prone to forget. As the history of Israel irrefutably proves. And my hope is that as you meditate on this text, 
You wouldn't be surprised by such sin, and yet you'd be astonished at it. Such that you'd cry out with Paul, how can you? How could they? How could one turn back? If you don't understand how both of those things can be true, you understand neither the deceitfulness of sin nor the glory of our salvation. If you look at the men who sin, you're not surprised. And yet, if you look at the God sinned against, you're astonished. It's not surprising that sinners sin, and yet it's astonishing that they would sin against such a God. Even more so, that those who claim to have known the liberation that comes in the wake of the redemption of Christ, that they would then turn back to their slavery. is a most grievous and astonishing sin. Our text again takes up the contrast that has dominated much of Paul's argument to this point. The contrast between who they were and who they are. We have the we were of 323 followed by the but now of 325. The we were of 4.3 is followed by the but when of verse 5. And now we have this formerly in verse 8 followed by the but now of verse 9. And this formerly comes on the heels of Paul saying, So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son then an heir through God. And the contrast that Paul intends to make anew is not one that's just between verses 8 and 9, but one that is most emphatically between verses 7 and 8. The ESV leaves untranslated a strong adversative that begins the sentence you have in verse 8. The Christian Standard Bible doesn't do as good a job with the rest of the verse, but it does get the first word right. But... And yet we have to say to translate that into English, we'd have to put that word into all caps and bold. But, formerly, having presented the glory of the sonship that we've been brought into, Paul wants to again, in new language, set forth the slavery that we previously knew. So let's, before we dive into the loathsomeness of this slavery again, remind ourselves of the glorious sonship that Paul's just spoken of. In the fullness of time, God sends forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might fulfill it. Being our righteousness. And then in union with us, suffer the curse of God for our transgressions. As the price of our redemption. And that redemption was for the purpose that we might be adopted as sons. And then that we might know and enjoy that sonship, the Father sends His Spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. And that's what brings Him to this conclusion of 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now the contrast. But you were formerly enslaved. You, we were enslaved. And when this slavery was, speaks to the nature of it. It is when you did not know God. Doesn't Romans 1 say that we all knew God? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God is known. Atheists say there is no God. God says there are no atheists. Men know. So what does Paul mean that this was a time whenever they did not know God? The context has made it clear. The next verse he talks about them having come to know God or rather being known by God. In what capacity has he been speaking of this in the the letter? Knowing him as Father. Knowing him in his covenant love, knowing his redemption, knowing the spirit of the testimony, bearing witness that your sons. This is the kind of knowledge that one only has in Christ. By the testimony of the heavens, one can see that there is a God. By looking around us, even looking at your fellow man, you recognize that there is a creator and he is powerful. And then further, you realize we are sinners. And His wrath is against us. But only in looking to Christ can you know Him in a relationship of covenant love and faithfulness. What were we enslaved to? Paul has said in this letter, we were under the law, 3.23, we were under the curse of the law, 3.10. We were under sin, 3.22. But now he's been emphasizing that we were enslaved. You have it this way in verse 8. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And those that are not gods are spoken of in verse 9 as the, you have an alternate translation in the ESV, which I think is the better one. You might see a number there. Take you down to a footnote or a note in the margin. To the elemental spirits of the world. Paul uses this peculiar word. You have it in verse 3 of chapter 4 as well. Translated elemental principle spirits. More, more uh, the better translation again. In the same way, we also when we were children were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. And I think it's whenever you come to verses 8 and 9 that you see that that is the better translation. 
When they didn't know God, they were enslaved to those that by nature, to those that by nature are not gods. I think that makes it clear that this should be translated the same way they saw the word in Colossians 2. Where Paul writes, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. I believe the reason why Paul uses this peculiar word, these are the only places you find it in the New Testament, Colossians 2, Galatians 4. The reason why he uses this peculiar word that can be translated either as elementary principles or elemental spirits is because he wants to link their returning to the law as a pedagogue, teaching them these elementary principles to coming under a bondage to demonic forces. Hold that thought. By this letter, it seems clear that most of these Galatians were Gentiles. They're being told that they need to keep the law to to be circumcised. So most of these Galatians are Gentiles. The false teachers are of a Jewish bent. So prior to their conversion, theirs would have been a life filled with the worship of idols and false gods. And behind these idols and false gods stood demons. You remember Moses when he anticipated Israel's future apostasy? Said they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. That's exactly where I believe Paul is drawing his language from here. Those that by nature are not gods. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known. And this is echoed by Paul in 1 Corinthians when he writes... Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now concerning this bondage, Paul speaks in the most kind of general of language in Ephesians 2 where he tells us, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh like the rest of mankind. The contrast here couldn't be more stark. These sons of God were formerly slaves of Satan. That's who they were. But now, they've come to know God and be known by God. They've come to know Him as Father. They've come to know the Son as Savior. They've come to know the Spirit as Comforter. They've come to know the triune God in His covenant love and redemption. Remember Jesus said that this is eternal life. That they... Know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. The saints truly know God, but of foundational and paramount importance is not that they know God, but that God knows them. 
You remember Jesus said that many will come to him on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your names and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never, not I once knew, but then you, you lost that. I never knew you. He doesn't argue their credentials. He doesn't argue that they might have done many mighty works in His name. But He never knew them. What does it mean to be known of God? Jesus knows all men. God the Father knows all men. He knows what was in man, we're told in one text. What does it mean to be known of God? This is something different. Remember God, through Amos, told His people, You only have I known among all the peoples of the earth. It's a language of covenant and relationship and intimacy. You only have I known. You only have I set my covenant love on. Being known by God involves His redemption and election. Whenever we read in Genesis 18 that God chose Abraham, that He's chosen Abraham, it's the same word that you have in Amos. Translated as known. And it's not that that's a bad translation in either place. It has, that word has those, both of those connotations. When he knew Abraham, he's known him. It's because he chose him. If you know God, it's because God knows you. Remember Jesus said... No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The parent always knows the child first. Sinners, in bondage to their sin, blinded by the enemy to the gospel of the glory of God and Jesus Christ, do not of themselves decide To know God as Father. If God is known as Father, it's because God chose. Christ redeemed. And the Spirit testifies of all they have in Christ. The initiative is God's. It's not our own. Leon Morris comments, The important thing in conversion is never what a convert does, but what God does in that person. It is true that the convert comes to know God, but more exactly and more importantly, the person has become known by God. And that being so, our having turned back to slavery to Satan, to sonship and the Savior, their turning back is, is astonishing. It's as though they are repenting of their repentance. They've repented of these, these ways where they are being led by demons 
indulging in their sins and passions of the flesh. They've turned from that and now they're turning, they're they're repenting of having repented, turning back to those things. It is like the prodigal son, after having returned to his father, decides it was better to wallow with the pigs and eat their food. That's nearly the language Peter uses for this thing whenever he speaks of the false teachers and the turning back that they're causing in his second letter. 2 Peter 2, 17-22 These, these false teachers, are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. For if after having escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after, than after having knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after having washed herself, returns to wallow in the mire. How can one turn back after having come to be known by God to the elemental spirits of this world. But what's most shocking is the how of this how. How is it that they are turning back? Verse 10, they do so by observing days and months and seasons and years. One might speculate... Because of the context, they're returning to their pagan origins. That's not the context of this letter at all. What are the days and months and seasons and years? Those of the Jewish calendar. The calendar drawn from God's holy law. Whenever these former pagan idol worshippers turn from Christ to the law, they haven't progressed, they've regressed to be enslaved again by the elemental spirits of this world. If the law is a pedagogue and it's meant to bring you to Christ by both showing you your sinfulness and by showing Him forth in all the types and images and shadows thereof, and you turn back from the Christ it's been driving you to, you are turning to a Christless Law. And to turn to a Christless law means that you are not coming under the law of God anymore, but under the teaching of demons. Paul is saying your efforts at keeping the law of God are an enslavement to Satan. Luther comments, whoever falls from the doctrine of justification is ignorant of God and is an idolater. 
Therefore, it is all the same whether then he returns to the law or to the worship of idols. It's all the same whether he's called a monk or a Turk or a Jew. For once this doctrine is undermined, nothing more remains but sheer error, hypocrisy, wickedness, and idolatry. Regardless of how great the sanctity appears on the outside. He goes on. There is no middle ground between human working and the knowledge of Christ. If this knowledge is obscured, it does not matter whether you become a monk or a heathen afterwards. The Jews who insisted that they were children of Abraham and that God was their father, but rejected Jesus, received this rebuke. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the, I tell the, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. But doesn't Paul say elsewhere that the observance of days is a matter of indifference? Why is he so sharp with his criticism here? It's illuminating to treat, to, to observe how Paul treats this thing in Romans versus Colossians versus Galatians. In Colossians, excuse me, in Romans, observance of days is a matter of indifference. In Colossians, it's demonic and dangerous. When we come to Galatians, it's not only demonic, it's damning. Romans 14, 5 through 6, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. There the issue is one of personal conviction and conscience and Paul wouldn't have a person whose conscience is rightly informed by the word of God to just by force press on the conscience of a weaker brother such that what you've made that brother do, you haven't discipled him in the truth of how he should obey God, you've discipled him how to sear his conscience. So there it's a matter of indifference. In Colossians 2, the issue is far more serious. Paul writes, 
Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There is a lot of similarity between Colossians and Galatians here. But there's this vital difference between the two errors and heresies that are being promoted. In in Colossae, these things were being linked more so to your sanctification or being spiritual. You want to be the second tier Christian? All the fullness isn't in Jesus. You need Jesus plus these things. So it's how you find the really spiritual and mature Christian. That's dangerous. But in Galatians, Paul's language makes it clear it's much more serious. Because if in Colossae it's being linked to sanctification, in Galatia, the church is there, it's being linked to justification. The observance of these days, seasons, years were part of those works of the law whereby they sought to stand just before God. And that's why a return to something like this is a return to something that is weak and worthless. Because by works of the law, No one will be justified. This Christless return to the law is both demonic and, if persisted in without repentance, proves ultimately damning. As you can see by the answer, that Paul provides, he is afraid, might prove true. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. You remember how, Paul, how hard Paul's labors were among the Galatian churches? While he was preaching Christ crucified, he was driven out of Antioch, Pisidia. He was threatened with stoning at Iconium. And he was stoned at Lystra. He labored among them. And he's afraid that all this is in vain. The fear he has of the vanity of His labors is tied to the fear he has of the vanity of their sufferings. You remember in chapter 3, 
Verse 4, he asked, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Paul suffered for preaching the gospel of Christ crucified. They were suffering for that same gospel, and Paul's afraid it's all been in vain. And the reason why it would be in vain is because their return to the elemental spirits of this world demonstrates that they were not sons but slaves. How can you turn back? Here's the answer he's afraid of. That should they persist in this error, the reason they could turn back from being sons to being slaves is because they never were sons. They are slaves. But as Peter put it in his letter, to have come to know These things, to have come to enjoy the light of the gospel of Christ and the privileges of being among the people of God, to come to have known those things and then turn back, that's a sin all the more serious. This is what Paul expresses fear of in chapter 5, verse 4, whenever he says, You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by law, you have fallen from away from grace. Saints, I've expressed throughout this series that there is a bit of Galatian in every one of us. Some of us, it's a weak inclination such that we doubt the Father's love because of our sins. Failing to remember That God's covenant love and faithfulness is grounded not on our works, but Christ's. Some of us, it finds a strong impulse. And we think it's really because of our little performance that God is so pleased with us. Rather than that of Jesus Christ. This Galatian impulse resides in us. Because really we would be comforted if we knew it was because of what we did. Or we knew we would get glory because of what we did. But we really must distinguish a Galatian kind of impulse that resides in us that we hate and we mortify. That sticks with us all the days of our life before we experience the full redemption and adoption as sons. We must distinguish that Galatian impulse from the Galatian heresy. Of those who deny the gospel altogether. For the false gospel of salvation in anything else but Christ. There's a mammoth difference between the two. But even so it's the one that leads to the other. And thus we need to realize how quickly it is that the gospel can be lost under a cloak of righteousness and obedience unto God. The Apostle Paul labored over these saints. He's the one who installed elders in each one of these churches. And this happened in so, such a short period of time that he writes, 1, six, 
I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The Galatian heresy can spread so rapidly because it meets a ready Galatian impulse in all of our hearts. So what are we to do? Chiefly, let us be zealous to gather every Lord's day. To hear the preaching of the gospel. Coming as a message from outside of ourselves. Not looking within, but hearing the word of God declared from outside of ourselves. Hearing the message of the Father who sent His Son to be crucified. And then sends the Spirit to testify of the crucified Christ. Hearing this, may our hearts be endeared anew again and again to this gospel, clinging to it and it alone, such that we, upon examining someone turning from the liberty of sonship to the bondage of slavery, By efforts at self-righteousness, we would exclaim with Paul, how can you turn back? Oh, there's a part of us that understands it, but as we're looking at the gospel and its glory, the Father to whom we've been redeemed, the Son who redeemed it, appreciating the testimony of the Spirit, we would be astounded. How can you turn back? We would exclaim with, Peter, who at the prospect of deserting Christ said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. We have come, we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Sinner, if you've come to know that there is a righteous God in heaven and His wrath is against you, know this, that if you would throw yourself in trust upon Christ and His saving work for sinners, you would be clothed with His righteousness You would be forgiven of all your sins. You stand just before the Father. You know Him as Father. And it's our hope that in knowing Him, you too would be astonished at how one could ever turn from such a God to slavery. Let's pray. Holy Father, keep us. Do not let us fall. May our confidence not be in our keeping the way, but that you keep. Yes, the saints surely persevere, but they persevere because you preserve. 
So keep us. Father, may we not turn back. May we not grow stiff-necked. May we not rely on our own works. But again and again express we are utterly dependent on the Christ and all the salvation that's found in Him. Save sinners among us, Father. Call them out of slavery into sonship now. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.